0: Before podcasts began, there were audio downloads. We know not where they come from, only that they hold the power to entertain people and fill them with knowledge. That is how RSS feeds were born. For a time, we podcasted in harmony, but like all great power, some wanted it for good, others for evil. And so began the war a war that ravaged the internet until it was consumed by junk mails, and feeds were lost in the far reaches of spam. We scattered across the information superhighway, hoping to find them and rebuild our podcast feeds, searching every hyperlink, every protocol. And just when all hope seemed lost, message of a new directory led us to an unknown podcast called The Jodcast. But we were already too late.
1: The Judcast More than meets the ear. With Megan Argo, David Alt, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison, and Nick Rattenbury. The Judcast, March Issue. Hello, and welcome to the March edition of the Jodcast. And yes, I'm back. I'm back from my filming. And on this month's show, we have Stuart over in Italy and Nick in Manchester. Hi, guys.
2: Hi, everyone. Or should I say
1: buongiorno? Hello, everybody. Buongiorno. Buongiorno. (laughs) So, in the show this month, we're finding out about solar flares from Dr. Lindsay Fletcher. We find out what you can see in the night sky during March. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo.
3: In the news this month. Proof of high-energy X-rays from nearby binary system. Evidence of the progenitor of a Type Ia supernova discovered. And simulations of Martian water flows replicate surface features. Located a mere 8,000 light-years away, Eta Carina is a hypergiant star more than 100 times the mass of the Sun. The system is now known to be a binary, consisting of a luminous blue variable, the primary star in the system, and a massive late-type nitrogen-rich companion star. Both stars are losing large amounts of mass at high speeds. The primary star, responsible for most of the visible nebulosity, is losing large amounts of material at speeds of up to 500 kilometers per second, while the secondary loses mass at three times that speed. Together, the two stars lose as much mass as there is in the planet Earth each day. As this electrically charged material is ejected, it speeds away from the stars, and some of it interacts between the two stars. This is known as a wind collision, and there are only a handful of these sorts of systems known in our galaxy. Theory predicts that these high-speed interacting winds should produce high-energy X-rays from a strong shockwave produced in the high-temperature collision region between the two stars. Until now, however, there has been no direct evidence for this now, astronomers using the European Space Agency's Integral Satellite have discovered the first unambiguous evidence of high-energy X-rays coming from the collision region in the Eticharina system. In a paper in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics, Jean-Christophe Leder from the University of Liège in Belgium describes how he and his team used many observations with the Integral Satellite to detect the high-energy X-rays coming from this collision region within the Eticharina system. In this region, the high-energy electrons in the stellar winds are accelerated in a local magnetic field before colliding with surrounding photons and, in turn, accelerating them up to much higher energies through a process known as inverse Compton scattering. Although Integral detected photons with energies up to 100 kiloelectron volts, it is likely that some photons are accelerated up to much higher energies outside the range which Integral can detect. Next-generation instruments on future satellites may be able to detect this emission. Type 1a supernovae are important tools in cosmology, as they can be used to measure the expansion of the universe. The general model which is widely accepted is that the exploding star is a white dwarf in a binary system, but the exact mechanism behind this explosion is not clear, and this uncertainty could lead to problems in using them in precise studies of cosmology. There are two main types of model which have been proposed for the underlying explosion mechanism. One model says that the white dwarf accretes material from a larger, less evolved binary companion until it exceeds a critical mass known as the Chandrasekhar mass. At this point, the star collapses and explodes catastrophically as a supernova. In the second model, two white dwarfs merge and collapse before again exploding catastrophically. Determining which model is correct is difficult without direct observations of a progenitor, the system that caused the explosion. In the first class of model, the steady transfer of mass onto the white dwarf, and the subsequent ongoing fusion on the surface of the tiny star, should produce soft X-ray emission, which is detectable even from binary systems in other galaxies. The second class of model is harder to detect. Both of the white dwarfs are faint enough that without current instruments, they cannot be detected outside the Milky Way. Now, Rasmus Voss and colleagues have discovered a soft X-ray emitting object in archival images, at the exact location of the Type Ia supernova, catalogued as 2007-ON in the elliptical galaxy NGC1404. In an article published in the 14th February issue of Nature magazine, the authors described that searches of deep optical images taken prior to the discovery of the supernova show no optical evidence of an object at that position. This discovery of a soft X-ray progenitor for 2007-ON provides strong evidence for the accretion model for Type Ia supernovae. But things aren't quite that simple. This sort of model predicts that accretion-powered type 1a supernovae should only occur in stellar populations younger than about 2 billion years, whereas the stars in NGC 1404 are estimated to be much older, between 6 and 9 billion years. There may be several explanations for this discrepancy. The progenitor could be a lower mass system than was thought, since low mass systems last longer or there may have been more recent episodes of star formation in this galaxy, which have just not yet been detected. The surface of Mars has many familiar features, similar to those seen on the Earth. In places, there are well-preserved examples which provide strong evidence of water flow at some point in the planet's past, including deltas and alluvial fans. An understanding of how these features formed will help understand the history of the planet. Researchers using the Eurotank, a large sand flume at Utrecht University, have modelled some of the stepped delta features seen on the Martian surface. By simulating canyon systems and water flows seen from orbit, the researchers have shown that the distinctive stepped appearance of some of the Martian deltas are likely to have originated from single events on timescales of tens of years. They estimate that the amount of water required to form these features is similar to that discharged by large rivers here on Earth, such as the Mississippi, and that the water possibly came from sudden discharges from subsurface doors, rather than from rivers. The stepped nature of the deltas, seen in images from Mars taken by the Themis camera, are reproduced in the tank with the steps created by flows of different densities and speeds. The initial flow as the water breaks through a barrier, such as a crater wall, contains a lot of debris and forms a cone-shaped flow. As the flow continues, the canyon walls become less steep, and the initial flow is buried beneath a broader fan containing the bulk of the sediment. Further flows lead to more layers and further steps in the resulting deposits. There are still many unanswered questions, however. The authors point out that these results must be compared with the processes required to store and release such large quantities of water, and there are other features on the surface of Mars which appear more likely to be due to precipitation rather than sudden releases from subsurface storage. And finally, Asteroid 99942, better known as Apophis, is predicted to pass close to the Earth in 2029, possibly reaching as close as 36,000 kilometres, the height of the orbit of geostationary satellites. There is a very small possibility that it could hit the Earth on a subsequent pass in 2036, although observations have provided evidence that this possibility is actually quite low. The Planetary Society launched a competition to design a spacecraft which is not only capable of carrying out a rendezvous with the asteroid, but also tracking it in order to more accurately define its orbit. The winning entry was designed by Spaceworks Engineering, an American team based in Atlanta, and is designed to shadow the asteroid for around 300 days. The team hoped to be able to launch their spacecraft in 2012, giving enough time to refine the orbit, and allow sufficient time for a mission to be put together to deflect the asteroid, should the mission find that it is on a collision course. For the moment, however, the mission remains just a design.
1: Thanks for that, Megan. And so we move straight
4: on to our listener feedback for March. Nick, what have we got? Well, we've got a postcard in the postbag this month from Chris Arundel in Groningen in the far north of Holland, who writes that he listened to our Cassini Jodcast during the two-and-a-half-hour stop train journey from Amsterdam. And I know all about the two-and-a-half-hour journey from Amsterdam to Groningen because I've been there. And it is quite a long and painful journey, so I'm pleased that we're able to ease ease the traveling pain by listening to our dulcet tones. So thanks very much to Chris, and please, everybody, do send us to postcards. We love receiving postcards from all our listeners and learning about where you're listening to the Jodcast.
1: Uh, so, on to the emails then. A regular correspondent of ours, Mike Van Voren, has remarked on our pronunciation of a particular rock formation, and you may remember when I was talking about the picture I'd seen of Orion and Mars above the American countryside once again, and I think I pronounced the particular rock formations as butts, and I've been told they are pronounced buttes. so I do apologise for that. Richard Doc Kin or Keen, thanks us for the news coverage of the cuts to funding in the UK. And Malcolm Powell, a listener we mentioned previously that made his own refractor as a kid in the 1960s, he says that he doesn't have it anymore, but he still does have a six-inch mirror and elliptical flat from the reflector that succeeded it a few years later. He also wondered how people get into astronomy these days. That's a good question.
4: Yeah, and I think I think that's I think that's uh, well I think that's something which we can talk about in a future episode. Certainly, um, everybody's got an interesting story about how they got into astronomy, and uh, yeah, maybe maybe we can do that as a future episode. What do you think, guys? We can talk about how we got into astronomy, and we can also ask, I guess, the colleagues that we come across how they got into astronomy themselves. Definitely, and any listeners can tell us how they got involved in astronomy as well. Absolutely, so do send us in your stories via feedback uh, channels. Let us know how you got into astronomy. Was there a particular person who inspired you? Was it a program, a book, a film? Maybe you just went out one night and looked up at the night sky and just was blown away by what you saw.
1: Yes, yeah, so please let us know. Email us or leave us a review on iTunes or whatever and we'll pick it up. Just to finish off the emails, Nick Evitz thanked us for our continuing excellent and Lode Stevens of Belgium sent us a rather cryptic comment would like to have feedback. So, we liked your email. <laughs> the, Thank you very the much. The feeling is mutual. So, Stuart, what's been happening on iTunes?
2: Okay, we, f- we forgot to mention the iTunes reviews on the last show, so um, we've got seven to mention this time. and We had a repeat review from Country Bumkin, who asked if a telescope would be able to resolve the disk of a remote star. That's one other than our own sun, of course. Uh, yes, um, it, it is possible to resolve uh, the shape of
4: distant stars. It's not an easy job, and you can do it through a number of ways. One way is you look at eclipsing binaries. That's where you have two stars orbiting each other, and the plane of their orbit means that one passes in front of the other. By looking at the dip in uh, light output from the binary star, you can infer the sizes of the two stars. Another way you can do it is directly through interferometry. Now, this is using the state-of-the-art of of optical astronomy. Like the Very Large Telescope in Chile. Yeah, exactly, the Very Large Telescope Interferometer in Chile, whereby you combine the light from several telescopes together, which produces an interference pattern from which you can resolve very, very distant objects. And this has been done for at least a few
2: stars, one of which being uh, Achenar. And uh, interesting results with that one, wasn't there, Stuart? Yep, yeah, it turns out that Achenar isn't spherical, like the Sun pretty much is. It's actually very oblate, and it's a lot wider around the equator than it is around the poles. And the reason for that is because Achenar is rotating, it's spinning, and because stars are not solid
4: objects, they are balls of gas, if they are rotating with any appreciable speed, then the fastest parts of the star will be flung out. And so that's the gas of the star at its equator, and therefore the gas at the equator of the star will be flung out more relative to the gas at the poles, therefore giving this oblate shape looks like a, a big fat egg.
1: And of course that's, this, that's a similar thing for the, for the Earth as well, because the Earth isn't completely solid, and yet the equatorial circumference is different from the polar circumference, for exactly the same reason.
4: So that's just a couple of ways which we have managed to determine the finite
2: size, if you like, of stars. Finishing off with the iTunes reviews, we also had reviews from MSP user Sanibla, Giz, Supermassive Black Hole, Oldwell sixty three, and Strafford Watson, who actually listens to us on the London Underground. Um, Strafford's also an electrical engineer at heart, and he would like us to talk about the radio receivers that we use on the telescopes at Jodwell, um, and things like the signal processing that we do. We think that's quite a good idea, and we'll we'll get into including that on a future show, and perhaps even one of our video podcasts.
1: Yes, and just to bring you news about Facebook, the Jodcast Facebook group now has 89 members. So, doing well there. And we've had uh, a wall post, Andrew Bosson, who says, I love the cast. A question that has occurred to me recently. Every interview I hear about the cosmic background radiation mentions that this is what we see on an untuned TV. What did people think the interference was before the discovery of that cosmic background radiation?
2: Well that's a good question, Andrew. actually, most of the the sort of snowy noise that you see when you're tuned between channels on a TV which is quite difficult to do these days with digital tuners, most of that noise is actually just because of the electronics in your TV set mm-hmm. because you, your TV set is sat at room temperature, presumably yeah, therefore it's got heat, and that heat is basically the movement of very small particles like electrons in the electronic circuit, and so a large part of that noise is just because of the temperature. Only a very small amount comes from the cosmic microwave background, and it's about 1% of all that noise that you see is due to the CMB. So most of it is just because of it, it's at a room temperature.
4: Thermal noise then, just thermal noise. With, yes. with a smattering of cosmic ray.
1: Yep. And uh, just another couple of things. We've had new listeners. Uh, Nick Evitz has said that he's recommended to, he's recommended to Jodcast to the folks at chat. And he likes our Facebook presence and is catching up with four months of Jodcast and tells us to keep up the good work. And also Nick from, and I've got to get this right, because she's even posted me uh, a pronunciation guide. Akureyri, Nick from Akureyri in Iceland, uh, has says that they've got marvellous skies when it's not cloudy, although this can also be negatively affected by the frequent or rural displays. Damn
4: those auroral displays that people fly across the world to see.
1: (laughs) But she says, keep up the great work, guys. It's really good to hear real astronomy news from people who know what they're talking about. And that uh, wraps up the Facebook presence. So if you are on Facebook and you do listen to the Jodcast, please join the group. It's there. Go into groups and search for Jodcast. Okay, so moving on. There was a lunar eclipse during February on the 21st.
4: Did anybody see it? I, I just, just a general question. Did anybody see it? I didn't see it. It was, it was I didn't. It was three o'clock in the morning.
2: It was. I was staying up for a bit, but then the total cloud cover that was over Manchester um, made me give up and go to sleep. Um, so I didn't see anything.
1: So while one half of the Earth was looking out into the darkness at the moon, the other side of the planet was looking in the opposite direction towards our nearest star, the Sun. Now, the Sun is a fantastic particle accelerator, and even though it is very familiar to all of us, there are still many things we don't understand. And so, Nick, you talk to Dr.
4: Lindsay Fletcher. Yes, I was lucky enough to chat with Dr. Lindsay Fletcher from the University of Glasgow about her research into the electric and magnetic fields of the Sun. Now, the massive coronal ejections and solar flares from the Sun's surface are not a very well-understood phenomenon. So it was exciting to talk to Dr Lindsay Fletcher about her research into how these solar flares and these coronal mass ejections are generated. What are solar flares?
5: What are Okay, solar flares are massive periods of uh, energy release in the solar atmosphere. People sometimes think of it like an explosion, but it's not really an explosion, because an explosion is driven by, by gas pressure. And in the solar atmosphere, gas pressure is not important. What's important is magnetic pressure. Mm It's the energy density, if you like, of the magnetic field. And in a solar flare, what is happening is that energy, which was previously stored in the magnetic field of the solar corona, is released in a very dramatic way. Um, You know, one could, could... now you can now go into two directions you can think about well how was that energy stored in the magnetic field which is in itself a very interesting um field of endeavor lots of people in the uk and around the world uh study this or you can say well what happens when that energy is released and Mm. i really follow that second part what happens when that energy is released
4: before you go on this this thing when we talk about the solar atmosphere i mean mean, the sun is a big ball of of gas
5: yeah Isn't it all atmosphere? I mean, when we talk about the
4: (laughs) solar atmosphere, what are we talking about? Yeah, you're right,
5: you're right. Um, Well, we do think about the sun as having a surface, okay? Solar astronomers talk about a surface, but this is not a solid surface. This is not a surface you could stand on, apart from the fact that it's very hot. But it's not a surface you could stand on. It's defined by, if you like, the last surface that light can escape from. Hmm. Uh, It's defined by what we call the optical depth to... Radiation of a particular wavelength, and basically, what it, the fact that the sun has this this surface called a photosphere tells you that the density of the gas which is scattering and emitting the light changes very rapidly at that point. And so, in terms of there being a change in density, then there is something which we could think of as a surface, like the surface between you know the the Earth and the Earth's atmosphere. You could look at that as just a change in density. It goes from water to air, for example. And so you can think of an analogous thing in the sun. So there's this thing we call the solar surface, or the photosphere, the sphere of light. And above that, it becomes um, hotter, mysteriously. It becomes less dense, more tenuous. It becomes uh, strongly ionised, which is to say that the atoms have had electrons stripped Away from them, so that the the, the gas is electrically charged to be like and it can carry a current, which is also very important in understanding its magnetic structure. it turns out, and uh, that 's the region that we call well depending on its height above the photosphere, we call it the chromosphere. And then above that, still the corona, and that together, the chromosphere and the corona, is what we would call the atmosphere of the sun.
4: Right, this region just above that <laughs> yeah. surface of last scattering. Yes, I
5: guess that's what. Basically, when, when
4: the little photons become free, <laughs> so to speak. Yes,
5: say, yes. Um, not every wavelength is is free. Some wavelengths will still be absorbed in the solar corona's radiant wavelengths. Some, you know, just just depending. Um, But basically, from the solar corona, we see what's called extreme ultraviolet or x-ray emission. That's very high energy emission. And the fact we see that tells us that the corona is very hot. It sets the temperature uh, at about, uh, you know, somewhere between one and four million degrees centigrade. Mm. Kelvin, really, but, you know, (laughs) more or less the same when you get to that temperature. Uh, and this was this was really this was a puzzle. Um, in gosh, I'm trying to remember. 1937, I think the green line corona was observed, uh, and this is making spectroscopic spectral line observations of the corona. This particular spectral line, green in colour, was observed, and it couldn't be identified for a long time. A, a couple of uh, scientists, whose names escape me, worked out that the only feasible thing could be the emission from the element iron but in a very highly ionised state with lots and lots of electrons stripped away, Mm -hmm. uh, which tells you that the gas is very energetic or very hot. And it was basically at that point that it was realised that the corona was at millions of degrees Kelvin compared to the photosphere, which is at a mere 6,000 degrees Kelvin. And nobody really understood that. And to be honest, we know roughly why. (laughs) We know roughly (laughs) why the corona is heated, but we still don't understand. You know, 70 years later, we still don't really understand why the corona is heated. Um, so, the corona is hot it 's emitting an x rays and ultraviolet radiation also if you 've ever been privileged enough to see a solar eclipse, which I never have sadly if you 've been privileged to see a solar eclipse then, you know that um, you see this wonderful streamer crown like structure around the sun you can and, and you can see that with with your eyes suitably suitably shielded unless you 're in absolute totality and uh, that 's optical radiation, white light radiation and that comes from Photons which have been emitted from the surface of the sun and then scattered by the free electrons in the corona mm-hmm. because it's ionized. Mm-hmm. There's electrons scattered into the line of sight uh, in a process called Thomson scattering. And so basically, these are the, the radiation types that you see. There's also radio, of course, I should mention radio being at Jodrell. Uh, there's <laughs> yes. lots and lots of radio emission from the solar corona covering all wavelengths. Yes, a very important diagnostic for the corona is radio. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, not too many people study solar radio astronomy compared to other branches of solar astronomy. I think it's not it's not sexy enough, or something. I don't really
4: know. Well, the higher energy uh, <laughs> wavelengths are, are where we we learn a lot about the high energy physics.
5: It, they are indeed, and that brings us actually back to flares because uh, the the. Flares, th- these releases of magnetic energy, they do you know a number of things, a large number of things to the solar atmosphere. Um, the, f- the, f- the first thing they do is is uh, cause you might call it bulk motions, expulsions of clouds of plasma in a process called a coronal mass ejection. On average, about a billion tons of ionized material moving through space on average about a million miles per hour. These this is are chunks
4: of the sun, isn't it? It's this is of
5: bits the- of the solar atmosphere, mm. plus its entrained magnetic field. Ooh, so, yeah. <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> uh, plasmoids is the name sometimes they call them. <laughs> so the plasmoids, yes. so, so um, coronal mass ejections are, are one part of uh, the whole event that, that we call the flare, I suppose. If this magnetised plasma reaches our planet... Then it interacts with our Earth's own magnetic field. It squashes it, it, distorts it. It pumps our magnetosphere, the Earth's magnetosphere, with energy, and you know that has that has consequences for satellites, which can get you know disturbed by the, ionite, the, the ionosphere being um, um, being heated and disturbs the Earth's magnetic field and accelerates electrons, etc., etc. So this is very important to understand the the mass ejection and how it impacts the Earth. That, now that's one side of the sort of whole flare process. What I actually look at is processes happening much closer into the sun.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: And the other major effect of solar flares is accelerating electrons and ions up to very high speeds. Um, in some cases up to close to the speed of light. And the sun seems to do this with startling efficiency. It seems that something like half of the energy which is available... In the magnetic field, we can we can calculate this. Roughly half of that is converted into the kinetic energy, the, the energy of motion of these uh, of these fast particles, which are accelerated seemingly in you know fractions of a second up to these huge energies. And um, so, I guess what I'm interested in is why does this happen? How mm. do these particles get accelerated? Mm. Um, how can we use the radiation that we see from flares to understand about the particles and then one step further back to understand about the accelerator.
4: It's a remarkably efficient process, isn't it? 50%. I mean, we talk about efficiency in everyday things like uh, car engines and uh, machines that we can build in terms of efficiency, 50% is very, very high.
5: It it is. (laughs) And it's really a bit of a mystery. I mean, I should say that this number, 50%, it is conditional on some what we would call model assumptions. Of course, we, we can't go to the sun and we can't actually directly, you know, stick a particle counter in there and count how many particles there are and how fast they're going. We mm-hmm. can't do that. So we come arrive at these numbers by looking at the radiation that they produce and developing, a, a if you like, a physical model, which eventually becomes a mathematical model for how the radiation is produced. And one of the one of the, um, the parameters in that model, one of the things that we can vary to understand the model, is the uh, the acceleration efficiency, basically. It's the amount of energy going into the electrons and the and the, uh, the number of electrons that there are. And so it must be realised that there's different... You know, scientists, ph- solar physicists have got different ideas about how the radiation might be made and, when you're talking about
4: radiation, you're talking about electromagnetic radiation. I'm talking,
5: yes, I'm talking here about electromagnetic radiation, primarily mm. uh, um, X-rays, again, what we call hard X-rays, uh, X-rays, very high energy X-rays, almost gamma rays, in fact. But also radio, again, radio is so lovely, so lovely, yet yeah, so difficult in the case of the sun, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, um, it's a complicated plasma physics process so we observe
4: the radiation that's emitted during these events and then we infer what's going on exactly uh, in, in in the in the sun yes, itself yes so that that makes us our model yes and we try and figure out what's going on
5: yes so as you see the the inferences from from this process are that it's a tremendously efficient um particle accelerator and uh, of course you know we're interested i'm interested in it in its own right i want to know what's happening what's well first of all the only thing that can accelerate charged particles is efficiently is an electric field. You need mm-hmm. an electric field. Somehow the corona of the uh, sun and maybe by you know by implication coronae of other stars and also other magnetized plasmas in the universe are very good at making electric fields. Mm-hmm. Electric fields which efficiently accelerate particles. So although I'm interested in specifically in the solar corona uh, it's maybe reasonable to consider the c- processes in the corona as being a bit of a touchstone for understanding more distant objects mm. and one of the nice things actually about the corona is that although we can't go there uh, you know hopefully within the next uh, 10 years or so we'll be able to go quite close to there there's a project on the cards right now called the solar orbiter which is a, a, a an isa nasa project now which should approach you know not very close to the sun um I'm trying to think how far away. Something like 0.25 of an astronomical unit, an astronomical unit being the distance between the Earth and the Sun, and and when it when it you know reaches this distance, it's it's flying um it's it's flying around the Sun, it's orbiting the Sun, and flying through the Sun's magnetic field at that distance, and also able to s- to sample the particles and observe what's happening in the in the surface. So you know, in the next ten years, we should be able to. Uh, if not, go right into the corona, which we certainly can't do. At least see what's coming out of it, in, in the sense of counting the particles and measuring the fields. So that's going to be
4: very exciting.
5: Oh, it, will, it will be tremendous. <laughs> it will be tremendous. When yes, when
4: uh, does this fly?
5: Well, uh, this is a, a mission which is um, at the stage right now of sort of proposal stage. I mean, right. it's, it's somewhat more advanced than pr- proposal stage. In the instrument building, teams have submitted. Um, their proposals to 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 fly on the mission. So it's in it's in the ESA program. But you know, until the money's on the table and they're actually starting to build bits, you yeah. can you can never say for certain. <laughs> but uh, the the estimated hope for launch date is uh, twenty fifteen, right. maybe twenty seventeen, being a possibility and as must well. Must be a remarkably
4: high technological project because the even even at you know Earth <laughs> orbit, the sun has a, a remarkable effect on satellites, as you mentioned. But Sending something purposely towards the sun and expecting it to survive yes, must be very yes, difficult. Yeah, there are,
5: there are, uh, there are, are, are several s- severe technological challenges, which is probably one of the reasons <laughs> that ESA is interested in it. Right, You know, you have to deal with the fact that you are... Um, you, you 're going to you 're four times closer and so there 's sixteen times the radiation flux basically mm-hmm. uh, and so just the heat the heat load on this uh, on the spacecraft will be huge so there 's technology development there necessary to build heat shields yeah. there 's a, a higher uh, particle radiation flux uh, from the sun i mean there 's going to be for example a lot more neutrons neutrons are very interesting because on their way from the sun uh, neutrons most neutrons decay before they get to the earth they have a they have a half life of Few, 888 seconds, I think, minutes, in their rest frame. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's you know, a, approaching the, the time it actually takes for them to free stream from the e- from the Sun to the Earth. And so by the time they get to the Earth, or at the distance of the Earth, rather, uh, there's not many n- neutrons left. But as you go closer and closer to the Sun, you really see a lot more neutrons, not just because of the inverse square law, uh, but also because there's not so many of decayed. So there's a, there's a higher neutron environment, there's a higher particle environment, higher radiation environment and all these things have to be studied so it's a long time scale mission uh, as well as the aspects of um, you know the propulsion that you need you know people were talking uh, a few years ago about building you know ion engines to to make this feasible now mm-hmm. that turns out not to be feasible for technical reasons which I I have no idea of, and so it's just back to normal chemical propulsion. But before, yeah. you know, this was going to be a sort of technology mission that would test solar and electric propulsion, ion engines, all kinds of stuff like but that. they tried it with
4: Deep Space One, and, <coughs> and I guess it's pretty good for sending things away from the sun you yeah, know, to, to deep, to you know, long projectile orbits. But I guess if you're sending something close to the sun, you want to be able to control it quickly and now, I guess.
5: Well, I, I, I don't know what the, what the technological hold-ups were, uh, to be quite honest. One of one of the big problems about you know sending something close to the sun is that uh, th- there comes a point where you can't communicate with it anymore. Not because it's too far away, but because it enters the extended corona of the sun, and radio frequencies
0: uh. are cut
5: off. You know, you encounter actually a radio cut off, and then the also the, the the spacecraft is going behind the sun. It's orbiting the sun, so from for some of the time, it is um, behind the sun, and so you can't communicate with it at all and so it has to have an essentially autonomous programme that Mm -hmm. will operate in a very different way from almost every other um, telescope or satellite that we've used uh, with the exception, for example, of you know Mars rovers, where it's yes. got a communication lag, and you've got to they've got to have a certain amount of autonomy to be able to get around and look at stuff. Um, but Solar Orbiter, you know, we're going we're to have to program in uh, observing campaigns of a few weeks that the satellite will carry out by itself on the other side of the sun, and then um, you know when when it's back in contact, we'll just download all the data. So it's, it's quite a, quite a challenge. Quite so for a couple a of weeks,
4: there's a whole bunch of very nervous mission scientists wondering if their satellite's going
5: to. Whether the satellite is going to come out the other side, I can't imagine. <laughs> so, um, you know, so that's something, something for the for the future, certainly. But and hopefully that kind of study will help us, you know, unlock uh, the secrets of uh, the the particle acceleration mm. in the solar atmosphere. It's,
4: what more will the will this new mission tell us that uh, a mission like SOHO ha- hasn't told us? So has given us these fantastic images of coronal mass ejections and, and all sorts of things.
5: Soho has been quite amazing. Um, but what Solar Orbiter has is, well, a couple of things. It has uh, an orbit which, after um, some time, I can't remember exactly, you know, the order of uh, a year or so, it will be cranked up out of the ecliptic plane, out of mm-hmm. the plane of the solar system, so that its view. Will um, it will start looking down uh, uh, on the surface of the sun at different angles? It will never be looking down right on the pole of the sun, but it will have a view which will give it a much better will give scientists a much better perspective on the north and the the south poles of the sun. We'll be having out of ecliptic view. It, well, this has never been done before. We've never looked at the pole of the sun. We don't know what's on the top. a <laughs> <laughs> good point. Yes, we don't know what's at the top of the sun. We only yeah. know its face—the you know the face that it presents us all the time. Of course, it rotates, but we've never been and looked at the top. And this is very important because the um, well, for two reasons. The first of all, the, the the north and the south poles of the sun. These are magnetic poles of the sun. And there is what we call the open field. This is a lazy, lazy term because there is no such thing, boys and girls, as open magnetic field. All magnetic field is closed. That's the same thing as saying (laughs) that div b equals zero in Maxwell's equations terms. Um, But we talk lazily about open field as being magnetic field produced by the sun, which extends to interplanetary space and closes we don't know where, probably at the heliopause. Um, the outer, you know, the outer plasma bubble of the of the solar system. So this is like drawing the
4: the little field lines around a bar magnet you exactly. connect them up always.
5: You wish always to connect them up, but right yeah. at the top you could
4: <coughs> conceive of a, of a little line that goes, you know, straight it's up, straight
5: up and straight down, you know. Yeah. And and in the case of the sun, the sun's magnetic field is pulled away from it. It's not exactly analogous to a bar magnet, which is you know sitting there in a, a non-conducting. Gas and but in the sun, you know, the, the the magnetic field is being pulled away from it by this constant outflow of material, either in what's called the solar wind, or in coronal mass ejections, and that stretches the magnetic field out and distorts it and extends it to the uh, you know to the magnetopause where it hits interstellar space. Basically, mm-hmm. we reach the edge of our stellar system, our solar system, and so um, when we look at the poles, we're looking at these. So-called open field regions, and interesting things happen on the open field regions. The solar wind is accelerated in the open field regions to much higher speeds than on the rest of the sun. It it reaches speeds of 800 kilometres per second or so. And um, we don't know why that is. We don't know why the, why the, why the, the gas is accelerated. It seems that protons and different ions and electrons are accelerated in different ways. It's just a bit of a mystery. So we want to go and have a look and see whether we can see you know, any clues as to why the acceleration leads to s- such high speeds in those regions. But the other thing is that the sun... You may have heard of the solar magnetic cycle, the sunspot cycle. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that is, um, observationally, if, if you count the number of sunspots and make a kind of graph through time, then you see that this number of sunspots rises and then it falls again. And that process takes about 11 years. And then it starts again another eleven-year cycle. The whole process is a twenty-two-year cycle during which time the northward-pointing magnetic field of the sun. No, let's let's put it another way. If you look at the the, uh, if you look at the face uh, the at the upwards direction from this uh, from the sun, then at one phase in the cycle the uh, magnetic field is pointing upwards, it's pointing northwards, and then after a complete solar cycle, it's pointing southwards, and then after another solar cycle. It's pointing northwards again. So it's like the magnetic field of the Earth. We talk about the north and the south poles of the Earth. And those directions are reversing, but on a time scale of, I think it's about 100,000 years. geological mm, time, yeah. yeah. Um, but in the Sun, it's more like 11 years. And we don't understand how that reversal happens. But processes occurring at the pole are critical to this. At the pole, the magnetic flux from the magnetic field from the previous cycle, there's still remnants of it there. And magnetic flux from the new cycle kind of migrates up there and interacts with this old cycle flux. And somehow this is intrinsic to the process of the Sun's magnetic field reversing and the overall process being called the solar dynamo. So Mm -hmm. in fact by looking Out of the ecliptic, looking down on the pole, we'll probably be able to fill in that last that part of the puzzle in the solar dynamo, which is how the sun generates its magnetic field and why the magnetic field reverses every eleven years. And you know, part of that whole understanding is things like why are there sunspots as well. So. In fact, by looking at the pole, you can probably get quite a good understanding of a lot of different aspects of magnetic activity. So So we're going to learn a lot
4: by looking at this.
5: uh, Yes, we are. (laughs) We we are. The other thing which Orbiter is going to do is um, essentially hover above one region of the Sun for a full rotation. Now, if you think about um, observing the Sun from Earth or from SOHO, uh, from anywhere else. Um, the sun's rotating, and so you decide you're going to look at this sunspot region, for example. And so you, you know, it appears, okay? And you go, oh, there's a the sunspot region. And normally, it you only see it maybe two or three days after it's actually rotated onto the disk. And so you tr- then you track it across the surface of the sun. You mo- you point your telescope so that it's moving to different you know parts of the solar surface, and then this then it's then it's away again. You know, <laughs> it's, yeah. and so you maybe only get something like a week's worth of good observations in the life of a, yeah. an active region, which is unfortunate because th- as far as we understand, an active region lives a lot longer than that. And so you generally can't track. When I say an active region, I mean a sunspot region mm-hmm. and all the magnetic field that surrounds it. You can't. You can't understand the whole process of how does magnetic field bubble up from the interior of the sun? How does it evolve under the various stresses imparted to it by, you know, surroundings and interior? You know, how does it, how does it grow and live and then die and decay? Right now we can't do that because well, we, we can't. Only see a, 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 a we only see a few days worth. But we only efficiently see. I mean, in principle, the solar rotation period is twenty-eight days. So if you could see half of that, then you would have fourteen days. But in practice, you know, a few days at either end are cut off because they become foreshortened, is the, mm. is the, is the term. And in fact, when you're trying to look at magnetic field, it becomes even more difficult then. You just you just can't use those data. So you've got you know a few days in the life of an active region, and uh, with Solar Orbiter, it will actually co-rotate with an active region. So we'll be able to study the whole birth, um, evolution, and death of a, this one of these magnetic regions. So it's going to do that for us as well. <laughs> it's really it's be really a really busy be little satellite. Though, yes, and it? but its main its main goal is really to to try and understand the linkages between the sun, the sun's magnetic field. And uh, the particles which are accelerated in and onto that magnetic field uh, the linkages between that and um, interplanetary space mm. so what we measure in interplanetary space what we measure on this on the surface of Mars what we measure at earth you know what we measure is magnetic field and particles which are generated by the Sun and so solar orbiter really wants to try and make the link between if you like, the uh, what we call the in-situ observations at the Earth, particles and magnetic field that you can measure you know in the, in the general Earth's environment or in a planetary environment, and what you can see happening in a remote sensing way on the surface of the Sun. And the Solar Orbiter sits somewhere in between those two, and both images the surface of the Sun in a remote sensing way, but also samples in situ, the magnetic fields and the particles, and then that can be linked back to what we see on the surfaces of other planets and, and the Earth. So it's to try and get a kind of holistic view, if you like, of the, the electromagnetic environment of the Sun and, how, and from that you can, you can learn more about how it impacts planets and just the space environment in general.
4: A lot of the activity in the Sun is driven by fields, either magnetic or electric fields. Mm-hmm. What's our best understanding of how these fields are generated? Now, oh. the magnetic fields we understand they accelerate uh, the particles towards us as we see the solar wind. You also mentioned that the way that we get uh, massive solar flares mm-hmm. is through an electric field. Mm-hmm. How, let's start off with an electric field. How can we possibly get an electric field generated in the sun so that it produces these mass ejections?
5: Okay. Uh, difficult question. Um, the... There are these equations, which we all learn at university, called Maxwell's equations. And uh, there's a, four set of ve- a set of four very elegant equations, um, which describe the um, relationship between electric field, magnetic field, uh, charge and current. Magnetic fields tell charged particles how to move. Electrons and ions, electrons and protons stick to the magnetic field. In fact, they orbit around the magnetic field under the action of a force called the Lorentz force. And this means that if you move a magnetic field, the electrons and ions will follow. Conversely, if you move a bunch of electrons and ions, the magnetic field will follow. The Sun is nothing but a bunch of electrons and ions, really. Mm -hmm. And so the outer part of the, of the sun, I'm not talking about the corona here, I'm talking about the photosphere and what's below that, is in constant motion. It's rotating because the sun's rotating. It's also boiling in this process called convection. And as the gas, the plasma, rotates and convects, it drags the magnetic field around with it. And that magnetic field is uh, permeating the whole Outer part of the, the solar interior, and also popping up into the corona, and it's being dragged about by these massive forces under the surface, which we can't see. You know, we're, we're working out how to how to map them using this technique called helioseismology, but we can't really see. But what we can see is the magnetic field uh, pops up into the corona, and it's being pulled around by subsurface forces, and so. It's being pulled around and energy is being loaded into it, and electric fields are being generated in that way. Hmm. So, conceptually, you can see, you know, with, 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 a, with a, 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 a bit of a physics degree, a bit of a physics education, you can understand that a, a changing ele- a magnetic field creates an electric field. But the problem in solar flares is why does that electric field. Pop into existence so suddenly, so that it accelerates the particles. Mm. Um, why is it not there all the time? Why is it so strong? Why, why? You know, there's all these different questions about the electric field, um, and the, it's another actually a bit of a mystery. Uh, plasma is a very highly conducting medium, and so the electrons are free to run around in, the, in this uh, in this plasma, and that means you would think that any electric field that you generate is immediately going to disappears. be neutralized. Mm. It disappears, but apparently not. Um, this is, this is an interesting analogy, and in fact it's something I'm very interested in right now myself, uh, an uh, interesting analogy with the magnetosphere of the Earth, with the generation of the aurora, the mm-hmm. northern lights and the southern lights. On the Earth you can fly through the regions where the aurora are being created. The light y- that you see is generated by um, atoms of nitrogen and oxygen which have been hit by, guess what, accelerated electrons okay and uh, so the atoms get hit by these fast electrons and they de-excite and you see you see the lines, but the question is then what accelerates the electrons it's the same kind of question in a solar flare but in the case of the aurora, you can fly through the auroral zones and you can measure the magnetic field, the electric field and um, the particles, the distributions of the particles, and what you see in the aurora is that the magnetospheric plasma or the ionospheric plasma can sustain an electric field despite the fact it's very char- very highly charged. It can sustain an electric field which is the very electric field that accelerates the electrons that you see. So right now what I'm particularly interested in is actually analogies between the uh, the auroral acceleration and solar flare acceleration and mm. this is I think actually quite a new, a new people have been tossing this idea around for a while but I'm working on some...
4: It's a useful analogy. but I mean, yeah. you can actually go and measure
5: it. I in, in, the, in the case of the magnetosphere, you can go and measure yeah. it. And from understanding those processes in the magnetosphere, which is now reasonably... They're reasonably well understood, the processes in the magnetosphere. Probably a magnetospheric physicist wouldn't agree. <laughs> but when I read the papers, I find an astonishing degree of consensus so they're reasonably well understood in the magnetosphere, and so how do the same kinds of physics ideas applied work in the uh, solar atmosphere? So that's, that's one of the things I'm very interested in just now. So, you know, it's a nice kind of chain there. By looking locally... Uh, the magnetosphere you can learn something about the solar atmosphere, and then maybe if you learn something about the solar atmosphere, then you learn something about stars and maybe about more exotic objects as well like uh, neutron star atmospheres or uh, uh, magnetospheres that kind of thing i mean it 's all everything that everything that motivates what motivates everything I do is wanting to understand um magnetized plasmas really and they exist in the laboratory and they exist throughout the universe so um you know it 's kind of generalist approach in that respect. Theme. Yeah.
4: Well, thank you very, very much indeed for talking to us today. It's exciting and fascinating research and we look forward to hearing some of the answers
5: <laughs> to <laughs> those questions you posed before. So oh. thank you very much again. You're welcome. It's a pleasure.
1: Okay, thank you very much, Nick. And uh, Solar flares, obviously very useful for giving us those beautiful displays of uh, the aurora borealis that uh, Nick in Iceland was complaining about earlier. They may destroy the viewing of the night sky for Nick in Iceland, but we can still find out what the night sky w- is like for us, who don't have such uh, bad light pollution from outer space. So here's Ian to tell us all about it.
6: Although the nights are slightly drawing in, they're like to be warmer, and I hope we get a good chance to observe the sky this month. It was very sad last month that after a lovely period of clear skies, in fact it was very, very cold, there was some ice on one of my telescopes one night it clouded over just before we had the total eclipse of the moon so I suspect very few people saw it in the UK but I have seen some very nice pictures of it taken in the United States showing a very lovely uh, sort of russety red coloration as we expected well the stars we see uh, in the sky in March really I, I want two little parts first of all those that are visible fairly soon after sunset And we still then have that lovely part of the sky centred on the constellation of Orion the Hunter. The three stars of his belt point down towards the star Sirius in Canis Major, more of that later on. Up to his left is in fact the constellation of Gemini, and up to the right the constellation of Taurus. And as we shall see, just moving from Taurus into Gemini on the 5th of March, is the planet Mars. And if you carry on up to the right of Aldebaran, the eye of the ball, we come to that beautiful little star cluster called the Pleiades. High overhead is the star Capella in Auriga. It's a very rich part of the Milky Way. If you use binoculars on a dark night, you'll pick up quite a number of what are called open clusters. These are the stars that have been born together in one little cloud of dust and gas. And eventually they gradually spread out once upon a time, our own Sun would have been part of, a, of a, an open cluster. Later on in the evening, we see Leo rising, and a close to the star Regulus, in fact, is an interloper, and as we shall see, that is the planet Saturn. To the lower left of Leo is the relatively sparse constellation of Virgo, but a telescope in this region shows myriads of galaxies now, we live in what we call our local group of galaxies. It's a relatively small group, perhaps 50 members, a few large ones like our own Milky Way galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy, and also M33 in Triangulum, and lots of smaller ones. We're an outlying part of what is called the Virgo supercluster. And the centre of that is the Virgo cluster, perhaps a thousand or so galaxies, and that's lying, as you might expect, beyond the constellation of Virgo. And to the left of Denebola, which I think is the the tail of Leo the lion, towards Spica in Virgo, is a region we call the Realm of the Galaxies. And there, there are many objects in the Messier catalogue, many of the brighter galaxies in that region. And high above Leo is the constellation of Ursa Major, the Great Bear. The part we normally look at and think of is called, in this country, the Plough, in America the Big Dipper, which is a ladle used by the farmer's wife as she ladled out the soup for the farmhands at lunchtime. Okay, let's now move on to the the planets. Well, we have Venus and Mercury together in the pre-dawn sky, but sadly they're very low above the horizon. So unless you've got a very good eastern horizon, it's not really a very good month to spot them. They sort of uh, keep quite close. They're a couple of degrees away at the beginning of the month, and they get closer and then split further apart as the month progresses. But you need a good low horizon and be up just before dawn to see them. So not a good time, I'm afraid, to see Venus or Mercury. Jupiter is in fact in the pre-dawn sky, At the beginning of the month, it actually rises about five o'clock in the morning, two hours before the sun, uh, and by the month's end, uh, somewhat earlier, some three hours before the sun, so it's beginning easier to see. However, of course, it's in the constellation of Sagittarius, which is the lowest point of the ecliptic, the path of the sun through the sky, and that's where we see the planets. And that means that in our northern latitudes, we don't see it rise above the horizon very high, so our views of it, and not really very, very good. So, although it's now getting somewhat bigger, from 34 arc seconds to 37 arc seconds or so in the month, it's not really the best time for us to see it. We're going to have to wait a few more years until it rises higher in the sky. On the other hand, Saturn is almost at its best. As I said, it's currently below and to the left of Leo's brightest star, Regulus, just four degrees away at the beginning of the month. And by eight o'clock in the evening, it's nearly 30 degrees above the horizon in the east and southeast and and easy to see. It reached what is called opposition on February the 24th. And that time it's basically due south around midnight. So now in March, it's going to be high in the south, you know, in the in, in the mid evening hours and an ideal time to observe it. It's a magnitude of plus 0.2, which actually isn't as bright as it often is, because at the moment, the rings are becoming towards edge-on. In fact, the angle is only about 8 to 9 degrees tilt at the moment, and they only suspend about 5 arc seconds. And so there's less reflecting area, so it's not as bright. In fact, next year, the rings are going to be seen, or perhaps I should say not seen, when they become edge-on. And in fact, it's not going to be until 2016, that they'll be at their widest again. But a small telescope will easily show its largest moon, Titan, and also some bands around the surface. So it's a good month to observe Saturn. There aren't really very many highlights this month, I'm afraid. One thing it might be worth looking out for with a pair of binoculars is a rather sweet open cluster, which is the 41st entry in Messier's catalogue, hence called M41 it's an open cluster it's a little bit below Sirius in Canis Major so with a pair of binoculars just get Sirius in the center of the field and just drop down gently and a little bit to the left and you should pick up this cluster of about a hundred stars it's about 200 million years old and about 2,300 light years away so it's relatively close and hence relatively large in the sky One nice thing I like about it is, because of its age, some of its more massive stars have evolved off the main sequence, where they would have been blue, and have become red giants. And there's one particularly bright one, very close to the heart of the cluster. Now, in fact, although they're called red giants, we see them essentially as orange stars. And if you have a small telescope, it's a very, very nice target, and it looks very pretty with this sort of orangey star contrasting with the blue stars around. I saw a wonderful view of the international space station in fact at the time when the space shuttle was with it and it came over uh, in high in the south and was one of the brightest objects i've actually seen up in the heavens obviously when you've got both the international space station and the shuttle together you've got quite a good target to reflect light and on my night sky webpage there is a link to actually get you into the International Space Station data, so you can actually find out when you'd be able to observe it yourselves. Just one other comment, I think, to make. We're waiting, I think eagerly, if a little apprehensively, for the start of the next solar cycle. Now, the safe way to look at the sun and see the sunspots on it, if there are any, is to put Soho Observatory into Google. And that will bring you up... A website that has pictures of the sun vis- in visual light, but other wave bands as well, and also magnetograms. And I've just looked at that, and it is totally blank. To be honest, I haven't seen a sunspot on the sun for really quite some time. They ought to be appearing quite soon. We've had quite a long and deep minima, and it doesn't look from the records I looked at this morning that we've actually started to climb out yet. So I would keep an eye out on the Soho Observatory website page and have a look to see when you can spot the first sunspots of the next solar cycle.
1: Thanks, Ian. And I'm afraid that brings this issue of the Jodcast to an end thanks to Dr. Lindsay Fletcher for speaking to us, to Roy Smits, and to all of you for downloading us. So, until next time, we'll wish you all the best. Cheers.
4: See you. Bye, everybody. Bye.
0: With the Jodcast done, we now have to wait a fortnight for a new episode. We are here. We are waiting.
5: Can you shed any light on the recent so-called astronomy podcasting activity in the area?
6: They, the, the
4: government, would be the first to let us know.
2: Do you know what? I think that if there was some sort of an astronomy podcast, you know, that's how we live in a free land, because there's no secrets. They'd say, hey, download and listen in.
0: This is the internet.
2: Your head is kind of a different size than it is on television.